The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. Michael Guyad, I'm the publisher of the Lead Lag Report, and our special guest for the hour is Alex Epstein. You know, I, I reached out to you seeing that a few other people that I track follow you and started looking at some of your great speeches, great converse, great presentations. So I think this will be a, a really good conversation from the standpoint of what's happening today and the way I think minds need to shift in terms of how to think about oil and fossil fuels in general. So for those who are not familiar with your background, just set the stage to the audience who you are and and how you got involved in, in learning about the fossil fuels. So thanks, everyone, for coming. It looks like there's a great crowd here. Yeah, so my name is Alex Epstein. Thanks for pronouncing it correctly, which I didn't used to care about, but then Jeffrey Epstein came along. So I like that that differentiation. Uh, I think of myself first and foremost as a philosopher, which really means I'm obsessed with thinking methods, values, and assumptions that underlie our thinking about other things and our conclusion about other things. And one of my contentions is that most of the disagreement about energy is really a disagreement about philosophy. And I think this is even true among people who are investors and who predict things. I think many of them are have their thinking very badly distorted by bad philosophy. So we'll get into that. So I basically came into energy. I had been like a professional, practical philosopher writing about things for years. And when I was 27, I really realized energy is the industry that powers every other industry. The cost of energy determines the cost of everything. And I became very interested in how good is our thinking about energy. I became, I quickly concluded that it's unbelievably bad. So we'll get into some details, but I think one, one thing that's particularly bad and obviously bad is that we tend to talk about the negative side effects of fossil fuels without talking about the benefits, which is like talking about the negative side effects of an antibiotic or a vaccine without talking about the benefits. Just one quick example, and then I'll, I'll stop, is Michael Mann, who is one of the leading commentators on climate issues. He's a climate scientist. He's gotten criticism for what he's done as a climate scientist. But a more obvious thing that's wrong with him is in one of his books, he talks about agriculture and says, I'm so concerned about CO2 emissions on agriculture. And not one time in the book does he mention that the entire agricultural world is fossil fueled, both the machines that produce our food and the agriculture that makes our food plentiful. And so how could you possibly make a rational decision about this issue when you can't even acknowledge the huge benefits of fossil fuels for food. So I'm going to contend again that philosophy is really at the root of both bad thinking and good thinking about energy. Okay, so let's dive a little bit deeper into that. There's always a, a reason for why some narrative gets 
public, right? When did the narrative around fossil fuels being, you know, kind of being as negative as as, it, as we've heard for so many years, when did that start? Uh, we know it's because of the climate change. And I don't, I don't view you necessarily as a climate change denier by any means, but I, I want to get to the root cause of what's driven such a, a distaste for fossil fuels. I think it's a big story, but maybe the first really noticeable step is in the late 60s. You have the you know, anti-capitalist side, often called the left, but it's probably better to think of them as anti-capitalism, really anti-freedom. And the communism is failing around the world. And this is a very explicit development. They're looking for a new issue. Now, as the philosopher Ayn Rand pointed out, and I totally agree with her on this and many other things, the, the communists who claim to care about industrial production should have said, hey, communism is terrible. It doesn't work. Let's abandon it. But instead, they didn't want to give up government control of our lives. So instead of claiming that, hey, we're going to have industrial productivity and prosperity, they decided to oppose industrial productivity and prosperity by claiming that it was terrible for, quote, the environment. And this was, always, this was deliberately vague. Because by the environment, do you mean the human environment, like a healthy, safe, abundant human environment? Or do you mean the rest of nature unimpacted by humans? And the leaders of the movement really meant the second. They meant the environment over and above human beings. But because the pro-capitalist side never really owned the issue of having a good environment, even though those of us who care about property rights are really the people who care about our environment, what happened is they, they monopolized this issue. And then that became the central focus of attacking capitalism. And so all the money and energy and status that is involved in that movement put got put into this so-called environmentalism. It's really anti-humanism. And they really pushed it through the schools. And then it got, but because everyone goes to school, it gets in the media. And now it dominates what I would call our, our knowledge system. And the key philosophies of those are basically two things. One is that human impact is intrinsically immoral, so it's just bad for us to impact nature. This is what really what the idea of being green means. And then the other idea is that impacting nature is inevitably self-destructive. I call this delicate nurturer assumption. So nature is a delicate nurturer. If humans impact it, nature is going to bite us in the ass. And I think if you understand these two ideas, you can see why we're so obsessed with CO2 emissions, which I, I believe do warm the climate to some extent. But we view it as it's wrong for us to emit CO2 because it's wrong to impact things. And it's inevitably going to destroy the world. So neither of these are scientific at all, but they underlie so much of the culture. And even many scientists, I would even say most scientists, have their thinking radically distorted by these false anti-human impact philosophical premises. Okay, I want you to expand on the terminology anti-human because I've heard you talk about the stories that relates to, you know, various parts of Africa that don't have electricity and why cheap fuel is so critical. But I want you to really expand on that for the audience because I think you're largely right that what's missed in a lot of the conversation around the demonization of fossil fuels is the reality that if you go pure alternatives, uh, well, the problem is those countries that can least afford it end up having the most actual human consequences from that. Yeah, so I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad you asked about that because I'm, I'm using the term anti-human and that's a it's an extreme term to use, but I, it's, I think it's entirely justified. So the example you brought up, I think, is the, the clearest cut thing. We have a world, so you know, one of the premises is low cost, reliable energy is essential to human flourishing. Specifically, it enables us to use machines to make ourselves productive and prosperous. Without low-cost, reliable energy and the ability to use machines, the world is a very deficient and dangerous place. That's just a fact about human nature and the nature of the Earth. The Earth is not a delicate nurture. It's wild potential. Without machines, life just sucks. And the second thing is most of the world doesn't have low-cost, reliable energy yet, and that should be viewed as a tragedy, and yet it's not. 
And then the other fact is that fossil fuels are clearly the most cost-effective way of producing that energy. That's why they're 80% of the world's energy, but they're also growing, and they're particularly growing in the places that care most about low-cost reliable energy, such as China, India, and, and Russia. And so if you have a world where energy is so crucial and it's so it's in sh- such short supply compared to what's needed for, for humanity – and fossil fuels are the best way of providing it. And you talk about let's eliminate fossil fuels without any serious consideration of what this means, both for the people who have it, who have energy today, but even more so for the people who don't. That is an anti-human perspective. And, and some people can say, oh, I just didn't know about energy. But the thought leaders, they know, but they don't care. And the reason they don't care is because their goal is not to advance human flourishing on Earth. It's to eliminate human impact on Earth. So they're looking at everything through the lens of how do we get rid of our impacts? not how do we make life as good as possible for as many people as possible. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaiad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. I think the, the, the counter-argument would be that they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, right? Because if you go with the cause and effect of climate change, carbon emissions very long term, presumably, there are going to be negative consequences. Now, having said that, a lot of very intelligent people would argue um, that what may be misunderstood when it comes to a lot of the data around climate change is that you can argue there's some small sample bias with this, right? That climate changes over centuries and thousands of years and you know we only have the most recent period and we're kind of making an extrapolation around that so i think that's a a plausible counter argument but doesn't really hold up in the end because even if there are very significant negatives of our impact on climate doesn't change the fact that there are incredible benefits of fossil fuels that literally affect the livability of the world for billions of people so it would be one thing to say fossil fuels are totally crucial without them the world will not be a livable place for most people but their climate impacts are even worse. So it's just be this epic tragedy. But that's not how it's portrayed. Companies that say, and basically lie, we're net zero, we're going net zero. Like everyone, governments, they're not acting like, hey, this is a tragic choice we have to make. They're saying, it's great. We can rapidly replace fossil fuels. They don't really have any benefits. And that's some combination of just manipulation or ignorance about the economics. But it's really just, there's no focus on energy and its benefits to human life. And, and one consequence of this that affects climate is people don't understand that energy is the is the key to being safe from climate. It's a documented fact that we're 50 times safer from climate-related disaster deaths, or so from storms and flood, extreme heat, extreme cold, than we were 100 years ago, even though it's one degree Celsius warmer. Now, part of that is one degree Celsius warmer isn't even necessarily bad, let alone catastrophic. But the main thing is we use fossil-fueled machines to master the naturally dangerous climate. So we use heating machines, cooling machines. We use irrigation machines to alleviate drought. We use ships to you know, bring places, bring food from places that are, do not have a drought to places that do. Like we, we are mastering climate. And the fact that we don't acknowledge that fossil fuels are crucial, and they're also crucial to mastering climate. And so we're actually living through a climate renaissance. 
that is a, if you don't recognize that today, which 99% of thought leaders don't, that is a philosophical distortion. It's because you're looking at the world from the perspective of, I want to eliminate human impact, not I want to advance human flourishing. So I never trust anyone to talk about the future who denies or distorts the reality of the present. Okay. Now, arguably, I would think that you would agree with the idea that it's good to have diversification of energy sources as a rule of thumb, right? And yes, you want to obviously tilt towards that which is cheapest, but if you view alternative energy as almost like an out-of-the-money call option, meaning it's not in the money unless oil really gets scarce uh-huh. and the price really is vertical, right? That That's still something that as a human race, we should still strive towards. Right? I would just to have that in in the in the event that you have a tail event where oil suddenly goes to three hundred, four hundred dollars a barrel. Well, so I, I only I don't really agree with that in, in the in the way it's framed because oil is not a. I, what I think is we should have freedom and we should use the best sources of energy. So the main thing is we should be looking for ways of producing energy that are more cost effective than fossil fuels, or that are that or that are as cost effective but we can produce more energy for more people. And I think nuclear is by far the most promising for reasons we get into. It also revealingly is the most opposed by the same movement that claims to care about CO2, which is another piece of evidence that it's an anti-human movement, not a pro-human movement that's really concerned about CO2. But in terms of diversification, there's a lot of sloppy arguments because you could have everything in the world powered by oil. Oil is so versatile. And you would have total diversification if you could produce it around the world. So there's no reason why you need a totally different technology for diversification purposes. The one exception is if you're concerned about CO2, which is a legitimate thing to be concerned about, not apocalyptic or even catastrophic about. You can be concerned. And so in that case, yeah, you want diversification. But fortunately, just the physics of energy means that if you pursue anything other than fossil fuels, it's not going to emit that much CO2, just the CO2 involved in the fossil fuels, which are substantial and using the others. So we should just focus on using the others and developing them to the extent they're cost effective. But that means not having this ridiculous idea that we want to use sunlight and wind, which really comes from this idea that they're natural. And so that somehow doesn't impact nature, uh, which obviously they impact nature a huge amount because they're so dilute. You need huge amounts of materials. But we got to get rid of this religious idea that human impact is bad. And we need to pursue alternatives within that context. And if we do, I think our number one focus would be decriminalizing nuclear, which the anti-fossil fuel, anti-capitalist movement has has criminalized. So let's touch on that because I've had a number of people on these spaces, most notably Kevin Bambro, who used to be part of Sprott, talking about how uranium is really sort of the the play of the future, that nuclear is is where ultimately things will go, especially if you continue with this focus on EV across the country, across the world. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's made the argument that it's only a matter of time until uh, you have political willpower to start putting plants back up. Talk through how you see nuclear. Why has it been so demonized? Because you're right, there's a sort of a, a cognitive dissonance. It's the greenest, you can argue, of all alternative sources, but it's not something that anybody ever wants to talk about in terms of policy. Yes, it's it's a real tragedy because in the 70s, you had nuclear. So let's step back. Fossil fuels, part of what makes them so cost effective is they have these three amazing attributes in combination. So they're naturally stored. They're not a flood, you know, an intermittent flow like sun and wind. They're stored so you can just release them on demand, which makes reliability really easy. And then they are concentrated, which is particularly good for mobility, but is also just good for economics. The more concentrated, the better. And oil is the king there. And then they're abundant. And nuclear is that even more. Now, it's more complex to harness, but it has those attributes. It's so promising. In the 70s, we had very cheap electricity coming from nuclear, 
And then it's become about 10 times more expensive, even adjusted for inflation. And we haven't lost any knowledge about it. And the materials haven't gone up in any significant way. So it's purely a government thing. So government has made this thing 10 times more expensive when really it should have gotten you know twice as cheap. It should be faster. So it used to take, let's say, four years to build a reactor beginning to end. Now it's 16 with a very strong chance that it will never be built. And that just makes you know, your capital costs out of control because the, the construction takes forever and, and maybe even literally forever when it doesn't get approved. So it, it's this total tragedy. And so we're at a point where we're getting more interest in nuclear, but the interest is on such a, is so small in magnitude compared to what is needed and certainly compared to what's needed to replace fossil fuels. Nuclear is declining in many places around the world. So I'm a big advocate of we need to fundamentally change the laws. We need to decriminalize nuclear. It needs to be easy to build nuclear reactors, to compete, to innovate. Um, but unfortunately, because it's so behind, it's you're talking about generations for it to overtake the world. And these, co- these countries are saying, oh, we're going to go nuclear quickly. You're doing nothing of the sort. Even if you had really good policies, it would take a long time. But what, what you're considering now, it'll take basically forever. So we should focus on liberating it, but not have our heads in the sand that this is going to replace fossil fuels in the next 30 years, because it's not at all. So yeah, hydro is an amazing source of energy, but it is limited in versatility and it's limited in scale. So it's, it's when we're, when I'm talking about energy, it's usually about global energy because the main concern is, you know, the global side effects, predicted on climate of fossil fuel use. So I'm always thinking in terms of, is there actually something that can replace the benefits of fossil fuels? And so with hydro, the answer is no, but where you can build it, it can produce very cheap electricity for a very long time. And it's, you know, it's a beautiful technology. It's great. Does have more, many more issues than nuclear with like displacing people, like property rights issues, that kind of thing. In terms of the pure efficiency of it, it's very impressive, but it's just for electricity, you know, which right now is about 20% of the world's energy. And the main thing is it doesn't work most places because you need the right topography. So it could scale a lot more and what's, and that would be great for the most part. But it's nowhere near the level of, of fossil fuels. So that's that's the basic issue. I have. I think the main thing is that energy use is a good thing and that we should be expecting to find many new uses of energy. So if you look at what, what's happening with Bitcoin and the objections, people are saying, oh, my gosh, this is using so much energy. And it's a new thing that I'm not used to. And why are we doing that? But that's great. We want to find new ways to use machines to improve our lives. And if you think about the value proposition Bitcoin, it's an amazing value proposition. It's saying, hey, we can have this truly secure in every sense of the world source of money that cannot be looted by government bureaucrats on a whim. And people are saying, yeah, that's a huge value to me. I'm worth, I'm willing to pay for that. And therefore it's worth it to use all these machines to produce energy, you know, to do the proof of work necessary for Bitcoin. So the main thing is it is good to use energy to create value and you should not be upset about that. And with fossil fuels, it's the same point. And it's just that, yeah, if you think it has negative side effects, it still has amazing benefits. And so if you're in favor of Bitcoin, you're saying, yeah, this has huge benefits that far outweigh the negative side effects. Now, there's a lot of discussion in Bitcoin about to what extent is this using so-called renewable energy, solar and wind, which I often call unreliables because they're intermittent and you can't depend on them. And I think the, the bottom line is it's conceivable that there's some utility of, uh, like they can somehow make these intermittent things more efficient, but in general, they're going to be using the lowest cost source of energy, and that's usually fossil fuels. And when people are claiming to be 100% solar and wind, 
that is an accounting gimmick. What they're doing is they're paying a grid that's usually mostly fossil fueled, mostly nuclear, mostly hydro to give them credit for the solar and wind that everyone else uses. And then everyone else gets the blame for, you know, for, for the coal, oil and natural gas that they use, not oil so much because not for electricity these days. But so it's really an accounting scam. And like you have a lot of power purchase agreements. That's one kind of euphemism that's used. But really, electricity is just all interchangeable. It's, it's homogenized. And so if you're using electricity, you're using a lot of fossil fuels. And I think the Bitcoin community needs to embrace that. They should also be advocating for decriminalizing nuclear. Like if they want to do something in terms of, quote, cleaner energy, that should be the focus, not pretending that unreliable solar and wind are just going to power Bitcoin in the future. I want to hit on, Alex, a little bit, the link of fossil fuels to to food, right, through the through the conduit of fertilizer. Because I don't know if that many people really understand how important fertilizer is to what they actually eat and what they see in the grocery and then how net gas is, is critical to that. So let's talk through that for the audience. I think that, that kind of explains partially, aside from Russia, Ukraine, what's happening with food prices lately. Yeah. So there's there's two things. And I think the fertilizer one is not understood, but then there's another one that's equally not understood. So yeah. So fertilizer derived from natural gas is crucial to the world economy. When you think about what fertilizer does is it makes food grow much more plentifully than it would otherwise grow. We used to get it, you know, our best source or close to best source used to be bat guano and nature doesn't give us very much of this. And this is true of a lot of things that are valuable. Nature doesn't give us uh, enough of it. It's the same with wood, right? It doesn't give us enough wood to use wood cost effectively on a scale of 8 billion people. So we need to figure out other things. And that, you know, fossil fuels, nuclear are things that are much more scalable than wood. And so we have natural gas-based fertilizer, which is an amazing achievement, but rising natural gas prices mean much higher fertilizer costs, which mean much higher agriculture costs. The other thing, though, which is equally unappreciated, is just how mechanized modern agriculture is. It depends on these machines, overwhelmingly powered by fossil fuels, like a harvester that can allow one person to do the work of 1,000 of the best manual laborers. Like That is really what energy does. It amplifies and expands our productive ability. So you have this combination of the fertilizer derived using natural gas and then the all these machines mostly using oil. And that's why I said earlier, this like Michael Mann is just a total, he has no business talking about anything if he talks about the future of agriculture and he only talks about, oh, climate change could harm this. And he doesn't talk about the fact that 8 billion people today depend on fossil fuels for agriculture and will for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think that, that's, a, that's an important link and distinction to, to emphasize. I, I want to go to why this has become so politicized. I mean, you kind of alluded to a little bit as far as you know, the prior earlier question, but it, it seems like this issue of focusing on fossil fuels, if you're pro it, you're Republican, if you're anti it, you're Democrat, and there's never anywhere sort of, of a meeting in between, right, as far as sort of the the reality on the ground. What really drove such a political narrative around this? Because I have to tell you, it's remarkable to me that it seems like this is what is is characterized as one's political belief. It's a really good question. I don't know if I have a full answer to it. What what I said before, I think, is relevant about the, you know, the political right generally stands for pro-capitalism. I don't think anywhere near consistently enough. And the political left often stands for anti-capitalism. And the modern anti-human environmental movement was provably connected to the anti-capitalist movement. And we can see it's, you know, it's, it has a very, very big 
goals of global control of industry and of people. So I think there's that kind of association. And so what you get is there's a certain incentive for people who want more government control to latch on to the narrative that free people using energy are going to cause a catastrophe. And then on the other side, there's a certain reluctance of people who are pro-freedom to believe that there could be a catastrophe. And my view is that you have to be clinical about this kind of thing. You can't go in assuming that CO2 emissions are catastrophic or that they're non-catastrophic. You have to look at them in the context of the benefits, and then you have to look at them on their own. And I think if you do that, it's pretty clear, yeah, they do have a warming impact. But to a point you made earlier that I didn't address, you know, this impact is pretty small in terms of the 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 history of things. I mean, the Earth is very cold right now compared to its history. Life on Earth flourished when it was 12 degrees, 14 degrees Celsius, 25 degrees Fahrenheit warmer. The world will become a little bit more tropical if we warm. It tends to become warmer near the poles, which is actually a good thing because that's where people tend to want it. But it's really, it's a more, think of it as a more tropical world, not like this desert hellscape. But that's just total pseudoscience. In general, a warmer world is a wetter world and it tends to be more tropical in cold places than it is now. So yeah, it's, it's a great question. So it's something I've been working on a lot and I, I discussed it in the moral case for fossil fuels at the end. I, I made a pitch for companies to do better at this because it really is a, a tragedy that they have not advocated for their own product. What they've really done is they've they've advocated the idea that their product is a temporarily necessary evil. So instead of saying, hey, this is a superior good, we use this because it's the best way of improving our lives in the realm of energy, and we plan to do so for a while. They're like, oh, it's a temporarily necessary evil, which puts it in the category of, of tobacco. Right? It's like something that, oh, it's an addiction. Uh, you shouldn't be doing it, but it's going to take us a while to get off. And that is not a persuasive argument at all. And what it tends to do is people think, well, if you're saying it's a necessary evil, it's evil. But it's probably not necessary for very long, and you're just deniers and you're delayers. I think part of why they haven't done this is, one, it's not the expertise of the oil industry to communicate controversial ideas that go against the establishment. This is one reason why I'm very proud to kind of be in this space and be a full-time professional who's thinking about these things, because I've developed the ability to, to challenge the establishment on these controversial issues. But that's not the oil the oil industry's expertise. So they don't have any native expertise. And then they, and particularly their PR people, tend to be conventional. Like they're growing up in the same system that everyone else is, particularly the PR people. And so they don't really clearly know how to answer all the arguments. I think that was true for a while, but it has been improving a lot. And so it's still not nearly good enough. And in some ways, it's declining, particularly with the really big companies and what's called ESG, environmental social governance, which we could go into. But there are some really good examples. So there's a guy named Adam Anderson, whom I've come to know, who was really influenced by Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, used some of its arguments to challenge the North Face very prominently. And that got national attention. Another guy, Chris Wright, Liberty Oil Field Services. Adam is from, is from a company called Innovex, another CEO has been really outspoken. You're seeing more and more. Toby Rice, who runs EQT, has said some really good stuff. The big, that's the biggest natural gas producer. You're seeing more and more CEOs stand up. And the really cool thing is it's very effective. And so what, once they can prove that this is effective, then other people are going to do it. So I think there is a positive trend. But what was needed was for them to have the arguments really clearly and for a proof of concept. And so I'm, I'm really happy to have contributed to that, not just through moral case for fossil fuels and then in the future of fossil future, but I have a website called energytalkingpoints.com that's free, which I highly recommend checking out and you, you can subscribe to the newsletter. And what that does is it really breaks down these arguments into Twitter-sized bullet points. And I do think that's really, really helped 
executives and other people, and especially politicians, be more effective on these issues? Because I make it as easy as possible to use my approach to arguing to the general public on any issue. It's a great question. I wish more people would ask it. We tend to be very authoritarian right now with science. And it's great to want expertise, but you really need experts who are explainers and advisors, not who, who dictate things in an authoritarian way. And so it's a very legitimate question, like, what's the methodology given that you can't run a controlled experiment with multiple climates where you, you, know, you can change 20 different variables in a controlled way and then test it? You can't do that. What we do, there are two things I think that are important. One is we do have decent not great, but decent like records of the history of certain variables, particularly CO2. And I think when you look at the long, long-term history of CO2, what you see is that it is not this overwhelming driver of climate, because what you see is that it it has been very high. It's been, you know, 15 times or more higher than it is today. And 15 times higher than it is today. And temperatures have been way higher, but they don't correlate. So it'd be one thing is if you had historically CO2 went up and then temperature went up and CO2 went down and temperature went down, what you see is they don't correlate consistently. And also where they do correlate, most often what happens is the CO2 lags, this is lead lag, which I just thought about, right? So the CO2 tends to lag the temperature. So what's happening is the, the world warms and then more CO2 comes out of the oceans. That's the general thing. Now, that doesn't mean that CO2 can't be a driver. It means it's not historically the overwhelming driver that it's portrayed as. But the other thing you can look at, which points to CO2, is you can run certain kinds of controlled experiments where you are showing that, hey, if you increase the concentration of this kind of gas, it gets warmer. And, you know, we see this with water vapor, which is another greenhouse gas. Like, you know, you increase that and that has a certain kind of warming influence because what it does is it slows, basically, it's, the short version is it slows the release uh, of heat into the atmosphere when infrared radiation is reflected off the earth or re-emitted off the earth. And so it has sort of, it, it just, yeah, it slows the escape of heat. And so that makes it warmer, but it's not this overwhelming, it, it's just a thing to look at clinically and to factor in. It's not this overwhelming thing that's going to boil the earth. That, that's clearly not true, but also it's important that we don't have this ultra precise understanding, which is why the variation of the different models is huge. The, the different models have hugely different predictions, and it's because we simply don't have a precise causal understanding of the magnitude of the effects when taken in the context of the complexity of the global climate system. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's that's something I think people in pretty much every domain they underestimate chaotic systems where little things can have big impacts, right? Butterfly effects, and certainly when you talk about the environment and climate, there's nothing more chaotic, you know, that has so many variables impacting it like, like that. In general, so if you think about human beings are naturally poor, that's a very important point that's not stressed. I mean, you can think of it as the world is a naturally deficient and dangerous place. And it's because that's the way nature is, but also our bodies are very weak. And so we on our own cannot produce enough to be very well off. That's one reason historically people use different kinds of coerced servants and slaves, because that was they were trying to overcome their natural weakness and increase their productive ability, not in a moral way, but it's understandable when everyone is poor and you have really no chance to become rich. Now we have machines to make us rich, but that requires low cost, reliable energy. So we can use these machines to be super productive and prosperous. And if you think about what happens when the cost of energy goes up, it hurts the poorest people the most. One is in places where you do have a modern machine-driven civilization, like in the US, 
everything becomes more expensive. And so the poorest people are, are hurt most of all, because all these things that are produced by machines become more expensive. We're seeing this with, obviously, we're seeing this with driving around, we're seeing this with agriculture, we're seeing it with everything. But then in the poorest parts of the world that don't even have any significant machine use in them, then what you have is it just becomes even more inaccessible to them. So what I think has already happened is the anti-fossil fuel, also anti-nuclear movement, has prevented billions of people from getting energy as quickly as they would have. And one frame of reference here is you take 1980. I, I happen to be born then, but it's also just a good frame of reference. Like China, Think about China 1980, India 1980, compared to today. There's so much wealthier, so much more prosperous, because they've, rat, in part, because they've radically increased fossil fuel use to become productive and, and at least comparatively prosperous. If they had been listening to the UN modern ESG, they wouldn't have done that. And so what I see with places in Africa, poorer places in Asia, is who are being pressured not to adopt fossil fuels, or who are just being hurt by a lack of supply of fossil fuel. Like Those people are being prevented from the enrichment that happened to other places 40 years ago and that happened to us you know, 100 plus years ago. So it's, it's a big travesty. That's, that's a really good question. I, I want to look into that more. I, I try not to have answers to things that I don't have a really good answer to. So uh, I'm going to look into it, but I'll just say that like, it is, I mean, so we have gotten a gift. In the, I mean, you could think of it as a gift in a certain sense. It's earned, but it's earned by the industry of like really low natural gas prices. But like we've gotten used to it and, and it's, it's valid that we've gotten used to it because it's possible given all the amazing technologies that exist. So people can say, oh yeah, well, natural gas used to be expensive and that was okay, but we want it to be cheaper because it makes life so much better. And also we just didn't have the ability to produce it at scale than we, as we did before the shale uh, revolution. And so it wasn't as dominant a source of energy here or or around the world. So often what you have with these things when the price is going up is it's not like either everyone dies immediately or it's just a paradise. Every every marginal, you know, dollar makes a big difference. And and to my to the last question, it makes the biggest difference to the poorest people. But I am I, I am going to look into that history because it's a really interesting question. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. And, and I will add to that real quick because I remember I think it was in the seventies. I forget who wrote the book. There was a influential book back then uh, talking about peak oil. So when the the notion of peak oil came out, and that was obviously many decades ago. Because yes, that is always the argument against fossil fuels. It's going to end at some point. Yes, I've got at least two really important perspectives here. So one is just the the basic economic perspective that the price system and markets are very good at handling this kind of thing where you have a finite amount of something or you don't exactly know how much you have. And so what happens is when it's, you know, when there's a lot of it and a lot of it for the foreseeable future, prices are low, future prices are low. And then when there are questions, 
the prices go up and that encourages you to eat, to find alternatives, but that can be a different technology or it can be the same technology, but in, in a different way, which you see with something like the shale revolution. So this, there's a, there's a statist premise behind this, which is that kind of the government needs to have its eye on every resource and to say, Hey, like, Hey, I'm worried that we're going to run out of this. So I better do something. So I better force you to use something inferior because you're going to run out of this superior thing. So there's no, no basis for that kind of view. But then concretely, I think it is important that we have 10 times in the ground, more than 10 times more oil, coal, and gas than we've used in the entire history of civilization. So to give an idea, there's so much of this stuff underground. If you look at things like methane hydrates in the ocean, it's even even bigger. And so there's a huge amount of what's called deposits and then what are called reserves, which are what you think you can use economically going forward. Those are always, your knowledge of those is always limited. So we know there's just this ocean of stuff and we're getting better and better at harnessing it. Plus we have nuclear, we have this other thing that is abundant and concentrated and stored that we can also harness. So there's no real, there's no legitimate fear of running out of fossil fuels for, for both reasons that I've given. The, re- the thing to worry about and the thing that's actually happening is running out of freedom to harness fossil fuels and other cost-effective sources uh, of energy. There's a ton of fossil fuel. And if we have freedom, we'll find amazing alternatives or develop amazing amazing alternatives, particularly nuclear related, I believe, uh, when there's still tons of fossil fuel left in the ground. It'll just become it'll become uneconomic for at least for most things. Maybe it'll still be economic for materials, just because it will be surpassed. But but for the for you know, for the next 40 years, we need a ton of fossil fuels. We need more. And that's why the new book is called Fossil Future, because we need a fossil future. That doesn't mean a, a forever future of fossil fuels. But in the immediate future, we definitely need them. And we, in part, need them to develop alternatives. If you're poor, you cannot develop good alternatives. Well, I, I would hope that it would be disconnected. What you find with these arguments that everything emits something, and it is true, everything emits something, is that they are used very opportunistically to oppose things that people like. And then they ignore the implications of uh, opposing things people don't like. And then if they like something, they ignore the implications. It's like, oh, I'm saving you all this money traveling to work. But then, oh, I want the highest value video conferencing, which actually uses quite a bit of energy as well. And so what companies tend to do is, or for themselves or for comparing policies to others, they'll just focus on, oh, I'm lowering your quote footprint in this way, but ignoring the ways in which you have a footprint in another way. And I think the, the way to get around this is just let's stop doing this. Let's stop obsessing over our carbon footprint. We should be using a lot of energy, which means emitting quite a bit of CO2. And then over time, we should be finding better ways of producing energy, including less CO2. But making the world a little bit more tropical is not a catastrophe at all. It'll be beneficial in a lot of cases. And if you care about people and you care about CO2 emissions and you don't want to see them go up as much, then liberate cost-effective alternatives. The only thing you can do that really makes a difference is develop alternatives that are low cost and low carbon. Without that, the U.S. is one-sixth of the world's emissions, CO2 emissions, and declining. China, India, et cetera, will rightly keep using more fossil fuel. China has you know 200 new coal plants in development, just new coal plants. So Again, the, the only way to actually deal with this issue in a humane way, in a practical way, is to liberate alternatives, not to engage in this ridiculous carbon counting that's really like a really disgusting primitive religion, in my view, that's just leading to mass guilt 
and uh, psychological problems for no reason. Let's talk a little bit about the new book, Alex, Fossil Future, and how it differs from the moral case that you've written before. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking. This is a, it's an unusual thing, I think, to have, like, I have this book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and the usual thing is, okay, like, write a book about nuclear, write a book about something else. But And I, I had planned just to do a revision of it, and then I read through it, and I just thought, you know what, I wrote this thing in six months in 2014, and I was really happy with it given that, but I know ton times more about the issue, about how to explain it. The first one wasn't comprehensive, but the main thing is I didn't think I really knew how, fully understood and knew how to explain the issue when I wrote that book in 2014, and so I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it right this time. Like as, as effective as that book was, I think it can be 10 times more effective because now I fully understand the philosophical framework that causes people to think badly about the issue. And I can, I can articulate a clear framework for thinking well. And so if you read the first part of the book, it's all about how today's thinking about, the, about energy makes no sense at all. It's, it's driven by an anti-human framework I call the anti-human impact framework, which we've gotten into a little bit, and that we need to use something called the human flourishing framework to think about these issues. And then I really look systematically at what are all the benefits of fossil fuels going forward, including how they compare to alternatives, and then very precisely what are the climate side effects. But I think it's it's distinctive in that it has a very clear framework it's using, a very clear framework it's in opposition to, and then just I think there's nothing like it in terms of how systematically and consistently it's looking at these issues from a pro-human perspective. So I'm I'm just incredibly happy with it. it took me took me three years, and it was it was all worth it. What's the, what do you think would change people's mindsets and maybe I should say more the media's mindset around fossil fuels? Is it simply as simple as, well, if prices of food keep going up, then, you know, ideology be damned because at the end of the day, you can't afford to eat. I mean, what, what do you think will change sort of a society's way of thinking about fossil fuels and how it interacts with ESG and a green movement. Well, I'll, I'll table the media for a second because, as I've experienced recently, with might say a word about the Washington Post trying to destroy me. The media are harder to deal with than others, but I, I think there's two things going on that are important. So one is experiences that challenge the narrative can be useful. So having an energy crisis in which everyone in the world wants more fossil fuel including Joe Biden, who said, you know, who ran on, I guarantee you, we will end fossil fuel and now is trying to say, oh, I was never anti-fossil fuel. I've been great for fossil fuels. We want more fossil fuels. Here's more fossil fuels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So you have events are challenging people's narrative, but then what you really need is a clear framework for interpreting those events because the people who caused the problems will almost always be, come, be framing the issues in a corrupt way. So even today, you have people saying, oh, well, if only we'd used more solar and wind, we wouldn't be dependent on countries like Russia. And it's like, wait a second, solar and wind failed to replace fossil fuels. That's why we need them so much. We don't have enough. And China controls the solar and wind supply chain way more than Russia. I mean, way more than Russia has any control over oil and gas around the world. So you have these crazy wrong ways of thinking about it, but they do exist and they're promoted throughout the, the mainstream that caused the problem. And so my view is I want to give people like two things. One is like a clear pro-human framework for thinking about these issues, and then to really give all the essential facts. And it's part of why I decided to write another book and, and to really comprehensive and current and clear book on this, because I do think that for people who are confused about these issues, but are open-minded, I think they will be very persuadable by this kind of argument. But I do believe that 
the wrong views are so entrenched that it really does take something on the level of a book to change people's minds. It's not just like one fact or one experience. And, but, but in my experience with even the moral case, as flawed as I think it is now, that changed a lot of people's minds. So you know, my goal was, if I can do something 10 times better, it's going to change a lot more minds. And people are so open to it now. Like the idea of fossil future even a year ago seemed crazy. Now people think, yeah, it looks like we are going to have a fossil future and maybe we should be producing more fossil fuels here in the U.S. I'm curious, do you find that policymakers are more public and outward, you know, critiquing fossil fuels, but, you know, among smaller circles where their voices are not heard, they kind of more veer towards your way of thinking? I'm trying to get a sense of if, if it's one of those things where People say they're anti-fossil fuel, but in reality, they actually are. But it's almost like a PR thing for them them as well. My experience, everyone is agrees with me more in private than they say in public. I don't think I've ever had anyone say, you know, Alex, I don't agree with you, but I feel publicly pressured to agree with you. I don't ever remember hearing that, but I've heard the opposite all the time. And it's not just from, you know, certain politicians, although they will say that for sure, Republicans, but especially Democrats, I've heard that from. Like they, they can't say what they they think they can't say what they think. But this happens with executives, people at companies, academics. There's just this climate of fear that people have, or they feel, or they maybe it's not fear, but it's it might also be opportunism. They feel like, oh, I can cash in on this thing if I say all the right things. With politicians, one thing that's been cool. I've been working. I, have, I mentioned this website, EnergyTalkingPoints.com. Part of that is I work directly with political offices. I offer this stuff for free, but I I work with them, helping them with messaging. I have over a hundred major offices involved. And what I found is that that plus, I think some other developments, we're having more and more politicians who are speaking out in a more articulate and and good way uh, about energy. I won't won't connect anyone to me or not, but Dan Crenshaw last week had really good, I mean, I guess he's been on, I've been on his podcast uh, before and I think we're going to do another one soon for fossil future. But like he had really good testimony the other day. I think in general the energy IQ and also the energy, like kind of moral arguments of politicians are increasing significantly. And I think that's that's a good thing. And and I think I get some credit for that, which I'm I'm proud to have. But but I think part of that is also that uh, politicians probably see it as a way to tax more. I mean, you hear these kind of rumblings about putting a windfall tax on energy companies. So you get them both ways. I mean, cynically, I think it always comes back down to that as opposed to... Well, that's, really that's, kind yeah, of that's, not the poli- that, that's the worst politicians, I think. Yeah. I mean, right, their right. view is... I mean, that, that whole narrative, just to say 30 seconds about that, there's this crazy narrative right now where you have a lot of people saying... They're doing two things. They're saying... They, they basically said for 20 years, we're going to do everything we can to make it unprofitable to produce oil and gas and coal. And they're saying, hey, why aren't you investing your profits in more oil and gas and coal? It's like, because you created conditions that make it unprofitable. So they'll say, hey, we've got these leases. Why don't you use these leases? And like, well, we don't consider those economically viable in part because of the conditions that you've created. So what we really need policy-wise is we need a long-term commitment in law where the government will not arbitrarily destroy the ability to invest in, produce, and transport fossil fuels. So for the last couple of minutes here, Alex, again, everybody that's here, make sure you follow Alex. Like I said, whether you agree or disagree, I wish people would simply get out of their echo chambers and follow people that uh, of all types of, of thinking, because I think that's the only way you can advance and have thoughtful conclusions to various issues. Maybe for the last few minutes here, Alex, what's been the what's been the biggest surprise for you as you've been communicating 
this to the outside world? Meaning, do you find that people are more accepting than you thought they would be? Do you find that there's there's such a vitriolic response? What, what's been surprising to you over the last five years? Well, you know, I, I'm very optim. I have a very deep optimism about the ability to explain things more clearly and get better results. I think a lot of people who are kind of activists have a certain pessimism about the ability to persuade people. But I, I always look internally, like if I'm not successful, I think there must be a better way to do it. And even now, as confident as I am in Fossil Future, which I do think is the most persuasive energy book on this issue by a significant margin, I still think I could probably do three times better. And, and I find that that makes me happy. Like I enjoy working on it because of that reason. But I also find a lot better results. The thing that actually did surprise me was how the response to the moral case for fossil fuels being a wild success was to just pretend that it didn't exist. So the people who opposed it just pretended it didn't exist. And what I'm happy about now, although it has some negatives to it, is now everyone is starting to be aware that these arguments are powerful, that I'm influencing politicians, I'm influencing companies, influencing a lot of people. And so what's happened is there's been an attempt with Fossil Future to attack me. And you know, I, some people might know if you go to my Twitter, you can see this at Alex Epstein. Like the Washington Post literally two weeks ago said to me, hey, we're going to here's an outline of something we're going to publish, care to comment. And without going into details, it was trying to expose me, of all things, as a racist based on individualistic, completely non-racist things I had written uh, 23 years ago in school. And so what that has showed me, and I, I was able to preempt this, and, and the story became how disgusting the Washington Post was for this, and it worked in my favor, but it really shows me that they're, that people are afraid of me now. The other side is afraid. I wish they would actually listen to the arguments and just change their damn minds if they can't refute me. Uh, but at least they're starting to engage me, even if in despicable ways. And that that's going to bring more attention. So I'm glad that the pretending that I don't exist has come to an end, even if I don't like the way that they're engaging me at the moment through smears and through right now they're running Google ads like if you search my name on Google, you'll likely see something that says Alex Epstein climate science denier because some really well-funded group is paying for that total lie to be there. So I don't like the tactics, but overall, I'm super happy because if the, if, if the human flourishing approach to this issue competes with the other approach, we will win and the world will be a lot better place. As a, as a wise man once said, haters are going to hate. <laughs> and that's unfortunately just kind of the nature of it. So listen, everybody, uh, for the hour, I certainly appreciate those that, that, have, that have joined. Please uh, make sure you follow Alex and yeah, keep an open mind. Take a look at his book and the new one that's coming out. When, when's the release date, by the way, Alex, on that? So, so the release is May 24th. And I would recommend going to fossilfuturebook.com. And just in 15 seconds, I, I, there's something that's not there that you should know about. I'm doing a panel coming up with Peter Thiel and Palmer Lucky, two of my favorite thinkers and, and people in the world. We're talking about the future of energy. It's going to be like a small live event. But if you pre-order the book, you will get exclusive access to that in, a, in addition to many other things for free. So you just go to fossilfuturebook.com, follow the instructions. You can also get bulk orders very cheaply. And if you have a, if you need anything else, you can DM me on Twitter at Alex Epstein. And I'm hopeful to have this as a edited podcast on my YouTube channel. Some of you may see that now that I'm posting some of these prior spaces. So stay tuned for that. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Thank you, Alex. Hope you found some value from this. And everybody, enjoy the rest of your day. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. 
A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.